1 Samuel, and I want to begin reading at verse 8. Hear the word of God. There was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michal took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? And there ends the reading of God's word. Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire to grow in our confidence in you, our faith in you, our service to you. And we pray that you would take this word, you would sanctify your people through your truth. Your word is truth, and we love it. And we pray uh, now for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, as you can see in the bulletins, the title for the sermon today is Seeing God's Hand When God Seems Absent. When you're reading through these verses, it seems like David's life is just totally falling apart. It certainly does not look like God's promise to David uh, long before that he was going to be the next king of Israel would uh, transpire. Uh, Even in the next chapter, David says to Jonathan, as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Okay, he was so close to being killed uh, during those days. And it takes faith uh, when you're in circumstances like David was in uh, to be able to affirm the truth of this uh, title that you can see God's loving hand in your life even when your life is falling apart because David's life was falling apart. In these short 10 verses, David loses just about everything. He lost his position in the army. He lost his favor with Saul. He loses his wife. He won't see his wife for years. In fact, uh, very shortly, Saul is going to be giving his wife away to be married to somebody else. I mean, this is just a heartbreaker for him. He loses all of his possessions because he has to flee from this window, uh, climbing down. He can't really carry much with him. And in the next chapter, we're going to be seeing that uh, he is about to lose his closest friend, Jonathan, and he will never see his friend again until the day that uh, Jonathan dies. And so the question is, where is God in all of this? It sure seems like God has abandoned David. And yet, on that very night, David is able to praise God that God is in total control of all of these circumstances. And the reason we know that is that Psalm 59 was written on that very evening. And I want to read to you the inspired title of that psalm. It says, A miktam of David 
when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. So those words came to him before he had even left the house, on that very night when these uh, people had been sent uh, to kill him. And yet in that psalm, he praises God that his enemies are no match for God. He praises God that God is his fortress, his shield, and that he rules not just in Jacob, he rules to the ends of the earth. It took faith for David to be able to say with absolute confidence, the Lord is my fortress. And you need to be able to say the same thing when the doctor brings the results of the CT scan to you and he tells you, you know, you got a very serious medical condition. You need to be able to say with David, the Lord is my fortress when you cannot make your mortgage payments or your wife walks away from you or your life falls apart in in other ways. The CPS perhaps is harassing you. Certainly, that psalm talked about all kinds of things going wrong, and he cries out to God. It's not as if he has no feelings, and he recognizes the danger that he is in, and yet he has an absolute confidence in God throughout all of those circumstances, every single one. Let me, let's go through them. In 1 Samuel 19 and verse 8, we have a reminder that when it came to war, David's leadership just seemed to be blessed by God. It says, and there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now, ever since chapter 17, David has been going into some pretty uh, scary and dangerous situations, and yet the Lord just seems to prosper him and to protect him uh, from the arrow. In fact, Saul has deliberately put Saul into situations where he thinks it's guaranteed David is going to die. I think it was probably situations like David is going to later put Uriah the Hittite into, you know, where he says, okay, withdraw, just make sure that David gets killed. And yet to Saul's surprise, David goes boldly into the midst of this fray and instead of getting killed, he's not even harmed by any weapons and he wins battle after battle with the Philistines. It's just an amazing thing. Now, if you've ever read the book Sergeant York, and there's a picture of him in there, you know that God can do the same thing today. Uh, everything around him was being decimated with the bullets. There's these machine gun nests that are just pouring the bullets at him. His canteen had how many bullets in it? The, the trees are shredded. Not one bullet uh, touched him. The scripture says that God can protect us from the arrow that flies by day and from the pestilence that stalks at night. Now, how can God do that? Well, the reason God can do that is because God is sovereign over the arrow. He is sovereign over the bullets that may fly uh, around you. You may remember the story of uh, Ahab's death. Uh, the prophet had said that he was going to be killed that day. And so Ahab says, okay, I guess I better take off my kingly garbs. And he disguises himself. And there's a soldier in the opposing army who just shoots an arrow. He doesn't even aim. It says he, he shot it by chance. By chance means from his perspective, there was no purpose. And yet, where does that arrow go? It goes into the one vulnerable spot in his armor, and it kills Ahab. God controlled that arrow. There is no such thing as chance from God's perspective. From our perspective, yes, there are. Uh, God prepared Jonah's fish. From the time that it was an egg and he was developing it to have a stomach big enough 
and uh, then to take Jonah, who's running away from God's purpose, and transport him over and spit him out onto the coast of Nineveh. Now get going, Jonah. Uh, God was the one who in Exodus says that he would send hornets to drive the Canaanites out of the land stage by stage, and yet he controls, continues to control those hornets so that they don't drive the Israelites out of the land. You read Deuteronomy chapter 28, and it says that God controls animals. He controls insects. He controls mold and mildew in order to bless his people or in order to curse his people, depending on what his people need uh, in their lives. And uh, the, the scripture says, not a hair can fall from your head without God's permission. Now, based on some of the heads in this house, God's given a lot of permission, but, <laughs> but he says... Even those things that, that happen there, they cannot happen apart from God's will. He says in Proverbs 16:33, the lot, that means the dice, is cast into the lap, and the whole, every decision of the, that, that, that lot is from the Lord. That means there is no such thing as chance. God's hand is everywhere. Now, I can give you numerous testimonies of my own near escapes from death, and some of you have told me of miraculous escapes that looked like it was certain death and God got you through that but we tend to forget that don't we after that and and next time a big crisis comes along we panic you know where is God in the midst of this and we get very fearful what I want to encourage you through this sermon is to look at the crises that God is going to bring into your life and he will bring crises because he loves you that's why he brings those crises into your life and I want you to learn to face those crises, not with anxiety and fear, but with the total confidence that David had uh, in the midst of those circumstances. He trusted God. Now, he was very active. He was not passive. He trusted God, but he did so with total faith and confidence. I want to tell you a quick story about Kepha Sempangi. Some of you may have read uh, his book, uh, A Distant Grief. But anyway, he um, wrestled for a few seconds with this issue of fear, uh, he told a number of amazing stories of uh, uh, how God had prospered him and protected him in the midst of some of the really scary and dangerous situations in, in uh, Uganda under the persecution of Idi Amin. Numerous Christians had been tortured, had been killed, had even been eaten by Idi Amin and his thugs. Uh, and he had just witnessed one of his fellow Christians being beaten to a death. It was, it was a horrible, horrible scene. So they were dangerous times in 1973. Amin had ordered all of the churches to be closed, and Kifa Sempangi refused to do so. But he did have an issue that really caused a little bit of angst in him. Long before, he had reserved the local football stadium to hold a huge conference on Easter Sunday. And he's thinking, wow, this is going to be so public. But he said, no, I'm going to go through with this. He preached to 7,000 people. But as he left and he went back to his church, five secret police from Idi Amin followed him, went into the, his little church, closed the door behind them, pointed their five guns at his face. And the captain uh, of this group said, we're going to kill you for disobeying Amin's orders. If you have something to say, say it before you die. Well, initially, he began to shake uh, with fear, 
And that is so easy for that to happen to us. I've seen it happen to me many, many times. You start looking at the waves, you know, Peter walk in on the water, and the circumstances just evaporate the faith from your life. But he quickly corrected himself. He cast away his fear. He rejected that. He looked to the Lord and his cross, and he said God just supernaturally gave him this boldness as he by faith looked to him to speak with total confidence to them. First words out of his mouth were these. Well, do, do what you must. The Word of God says that in Christ I'm already dead and that my real life is hidden with Him in God. It is not my life that is in danger, but yours. I am alive in the risen Lord, but you are still dead in your sins. May He spare you from eternal destruction. And the captain stared at him wide-eyed for a long time, finally lowered his, his gun, and he said, Would you pray for us? And Kepha Sampangi uh, prayed for them, shared the gospel. All five of those secret police became converted, and they ended up helping him through some of the difficulties that, uh, that he faced uh, in the future. Now, not all stories of persecution turn out that way, do they? Some stories are where God gives us the greater privilege of being martyred for his name's sake, where we're ushered in to the fortress of heaven, where no one can touch us. And in, in some ways, that's the greater thing. That's exactly the situation with Kepha's a friend who had been beaten to death uh, shortly before that. But here's the point. You are safe in the arms of God. You cannot die one moment before it is God's time for you to die. And when you die, you're still safe in His arms, carried into the fortress of heaven. And uh, we can rejoice in that. And so that's the first way in which God was David's fortress. He was a fortress because he protected him from the arrow that flies by day as he went from battle scene to battle scene. Verse 9 uh, indicates that David protect, uh, God protected David from the demonic. Now, the distressing spirit, and we've seen in the past that the word there is literally evil spirit. It's, it's a, a demon that he's talking about. Now, the evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. Now, you may question whether this is really protection from the demonic because, number one, he wasn't able to cast out the demon like he'd previously been able to do. And number two, this demon motivates Saul to throw his spear, to try to murder David. How is that protection? Well, you could look at it like this. If demons could not get close to you, could not be a danger to you, could not threaten you, you wouldn't need God to be your fortress, would you? So this demon is a danger uh, to, to David, but who sent the demon? That's right. Look at the text. It says it was a demon or an evil spirit from the Lord. Not of the Lord, but from the Lord. And we saw before that God sovereignly allowed this demon to come into his life. He could not get there. We saw before that David, I mean, excuse me, Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but he's a lion on a chain. He cannot go one step beyond what God allows him uh, to, uh, to do. And so God's providence is so amazing that it even governs the free actions of demons. We're going to be seeing all the way through the sermon how amazing God's providence is. It's not, God's not implicated in their sin, and yet He overrules and He controls what those demons can and cannot do. 
Uh, secondly, we looked at, uh, when we looked at demonic warfare before, we saw the promise in 1 John 5.18 that if we guard ourselves, the wicked one cannot touch us. Now, he can motivate other people to touch us, but he cannot touch us. This demon, no doubt, wished that he could control and possess David, but he could not. He wished that he could make David fearful and angry and bitter and have other things that would give him some legal access. David refuses to give this demon any legal ground to mess around in his life. I bet you this demon wished he could directly kill David, but he could not. And so in a very real sense, in the face of demons, David could say, the Lord is my fortress. Now, we've already taught you how to flee to your fortress when you've got demonic that's coming against you and your family. Uh, there's a number of things we can do, but obviously, first of all, you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. It's a strong name. Uh, you plead the protection and the cleansing of the blood of Christ. You begin to use the powerful sword of God's word against those demons. They have to flee when you use God's word. Uh, just if you want a, a few examples of how to do this, just read the Psalms that David composed in chapter 19 and chapter 20, the next chapter of this book. Psalms like Psalm 5, 11, 56, and 59. You'll see that he uses imprecatory psalms not just against human enemies, but against these demon uh, forces as well. And so God's hand was covering David as he did battle with demons. Verse 10 gives yet another way that God was David's strong tower. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence and he drove the spear into the wall, so David fled and escaped that night. Now keep in mind, Saul is a seasoned warrior. And yet this is the third time he's thrown a spear at David and he has missed. In chapter 18, verse 11, two times he tried to hit David with a spear and he missed. Now that is almost unconceivable for a seasoned warrior like Saul to miss. Uh, when I was a teenager uh, growing up in Ethiopia, I had a spear and I regularly practiced with my spear. I carried it around with me everywhere. And even though I was not an expert, I just cannot understand how Saul could miss unless God was David's fortress. God caused that spear to miss. And David knows it. And you know stories of people who have had uh, burglars or others who have tried to shoot and... Uh, you know, click, click, click on their revolver, and it, it, it's not fired. Uh, God can uh, cause that to happen. And the God who can make a spear miss can also make an infected mosquito miss you by sucking somebody else's blood first, right? Uh, he can make you miss uh, on a car accident so that you do not get killed. Uh, he can keep you from breaking your leg when you fall down a staircase, of course, he can also allow you to have a broken leg, and that will be for your good purpose as well. But he's in control of all of those circumstances. He is sovereign over all. There is no such thing as an accident, at least from God's perspective. We can call them accidents, no problem, because from our perspective, we sure, certainly did not intend it. So it's our accident. It's not God's accident, right? That's the whole, that's the whole point here. So do not chalk it up to chance when you... You know, you're driving along and a car whew, runs right in front of you and you say, wow, good luck. No, there is no such thing as good luck. God himself needs the praise because God gave you that escape from death. 
I've had a number of near-death experiences I can only explain from the hand of God upon me. One time I was climbing up a mountainside in Ethiopia, and the whole side of the mountain gave way, and it was, it was just a big landslide. And to this day, I still do not understand how it was as these boulders and the dirt were all flying past me, how I was not buried under that avalanche. It's almost like something was holding me up and keeping me on my feet as I'm traveling fast down this mountaintop, uh, keeping me on top of my feet. And I believe it was the Lord uh, who, who did that to me. Um, sometime during this sermon, God may bring to your mind similar uh, ways in which God's providence has been evident in your life. If that happens, just jot it down in the margin of your notes and what I'm going to do is later on, I'm going to give some of the men opportunity to share the reality and the presence of God's loving providence in your life. I think it'll be an encouragement uh, uh, one uh, to another. And then maybe after the service, all of us, the kids and everybody can share what God has been doing for them. This will maybe uh, stir some of your thinking. Now, your ways in which God's providence has been with you may be different than the 10 or 11 ways that I'm going to be sharing in David's life. That's Okay. The, 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 the critical thing is we've got to get used to seeing God's hand every minute of our lives uh, being with us. Now, the last phrase of verse 10 gives the fourth example in our text. He managed to get out of the palace. How did he do that? Because there would have been all kinds of guards and, and servants who could have grabbed him as he's running away. If Saul's trying to kill him, we better grab him. They could have closed the doors. But somehow David's able to get out of that palace. Uh, we don't know how it, uh, it happened. You know, maybe God just froze them into inactivity. They're, they're just shocked that Saul would even do this. Maybe he confuses them, makes their mind go a little bit more slowly than it would ordinarily have done. But somehow he gets by them all and he escapes. Uh, I've had a number of close escapes from capture in one closed country. Uh, one time we were walking out of the building. The Lord had prompted us, leave right now. Walking out as we see... Uh, the police, secret police coming in another part of the building. And some of you have shared with me some remarkable escapes that the Lord has given to you. Now, for some of you, your life may seem like uh, just the first surface reading of these verses that we've uh, read earlier. And you think, where is God? I don't see God in my life. Nothing's going the way that I want it to go. But uh, for some of you, you're going to look at your lives and you're going to say, wow, God's providence was there every step of the way. And it takes faith to be able to make that statement. Yet God wants us to walk by faith. Okay, let's take a look at verse 11. You can see here, um, God controls these messengers. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. That's interesting. Why did Saul tell him, okay, I want you to watch it all night and then kill him in the morning? Why didn't he have him kill him right away? In fact, in light of what Saul is going to be doing in the next verses, it just seems silly that Saul would wait till morning. Why does he do that? Well, I think God was in those instructions. God was the one who was keeping those messengers outside uh, and uh, keeping them from coming in too soon. There was one time when uh, the secret police were following Jonathan and me 
everywhere we went on one of our trips. It's like, we're not going to be able to get to our destination. It was impossible to shake them. So we decided, okay, let's, uh, let's just do some tourism. So we're walking around and they're following us everywhere. And we check into a hotel. And then about three hours later, uh, somebody is prompted by the Lord to uh, give me a tip. I walk, I'll leave Jonathan there. He can fend for himself. He's pretty good that way. And I walked out of a side door to a waiting vehicle. We went to our location. I ministered the whole week. At the end of the week, I came back into the building and they weren't the wiser because I was still checked into the hotel. In the meantime, Jonathan was able to engage in a whole week of ministry himself because they weren't looking for him. They were looking for me and what I was doing because I'd been caught once before. And so who knows why, but they're outside that hotel just waiting, waiting, waiting for me to come out. (laughs) And God was in the instructions, I think, that were given to them. So they were happy. I was happy. (laughs) Uh, We've experienced the second part of verse 11 as well. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. Now, either Michal heard Saul's instructions when she was in the palace, or she had some confidant who told her, Hey, this is what uh, Saul is going to be doing uh, to your husband. But she had inside information that saved David's life. Uh, We were just uh, uh, finishing reading this book that I borrowed from uh, Gary Duff. And apparently... uh, What's his name? John Calvin. Uh, apparently, he, <laughs> he um, because of inside information, was able to escape, very, very close escape, from Paris and uh, flee, to, uh, flee to Geneva. And, uh, you know, some people want all leaks to be completely shut down, you know, of top secret information, even if it endangers uh, the, uh, the liberties of Americans. But, you know, down through history, and I can sort of understand where they're coming from on that, but down through history, there have been a number of times where American liberties have been preserved because of a leak. Now, obviously, this can be used for evil as well, but quite frankly, I would welcome WikiLeaks of some sort from the United Nations or from the Federal Reserve or the Bilderbergers or some of these other organizations, and if God willed it, Ah, it'd be very easy for him to motivate somebody to, uh, to give this leak. Now, I'm not going to get into the ethical is, uh, issues of it, justify unethical uh, leakers. My point is that there have been dozens of times that I'm aware of in the last thousand years where this world would be worse if it were not for a leak that God sovereignly allowed to happen. Whatever you think of WikiLeaks, we have to affirm God was sovereign in those leaks. Verse 12 shows God's providential placing of an unguarded window. So Michal let David down through a window. Now, if the messengers are guarding that house, they dare not let David escape. How in the world could there be any window that they are not guarding? Well, one commentary suggested that this house was built on the wall, and that frequently happened, and that when she's letting him down over out the window, she's letting him down a long ways outside the wall of Gabeah, so he doesn't even have to go through the guards. But whatever the case, God was the one who sovereignly allowed that window to be placed just where it needed to be placed when that house was built, making sure the guards were not able to guard that window. And of course, we know God's plans don't just start a few years before, do they? They started before the foundation of the world. And God's providence contains even the mundane things like windows. 
You know, everything. There isn't anything that's accepted from God's, uh, God's sovereignty. There had to have been rope there, too. Or at least bedsheets that were strong enough to let him down. So there's a lot of d- details here that God was in control of. Verse 12. And he went and fled and escaped. David takes action. You know, too often uh, when Christians are facing disaster, they passively wait for something to happen. Uh, their stocks are going down rather, ha- rather than having a 25% stop loss and, you know, just selling and getting out and, and cutting their losses. They, they passively watch things go down, 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 hoping with a gambler's hope that God is going to bless their passivity somehow. Or they're in disastrous situation, you know, with uh, their finances. And instead of cutting up their credit cards and getting financial counseling and, and trying to make a difference, they're just passive. No. That's not a proper approach to God's providence at all. That would be sort of like um, saying, okay, God is my fortress, but God has to get this big old crane to lift a big blob of fat, Phil Kaiser, and brings it over here and drops it into the fortress, right? That's not the way God works. God commands us to flee into the fortress. And that's what David does. He takes advantage of every providential means that God puts at his disposal in order to flee into the safety of the fortress. Now, the point is that God's providence not only covers the means uh, of our escape, but God's providence also works in us, Philippians says, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's just amazing. Absolutely amazing how extensive God's providence is. It even works within us, His providence does. Verse 13 shows that God can even overrule sin for our good. Now, He doesn't sin Himself. He doesn't tempt us to sin. And yet it's quite clear that God can overrule and His providence governs wars and all kinds of sins that are out there for His glory and for our good. Isn't that what Joseph said at the end of uh, his life? He said, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. All things work together for our good. There isn't anything that's outside of God's providence. All things work together for good. Okay, take a look at verse 13. And Michal took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, and covered it with clothes. Now, the Hebrew word for image is teraphim. And it's a reference to the, sometimes they were even man-sized images that uh, the ruler of a clan would have to show his rulership, but it was an idol. Fifteen times that the word teraphim is used in the scripture is an abomination. It is condemned by God. And any Hebrew who read this text would be absolutely horrified. What? She had a teraphim in her house? What's going on with that? The fact that she has this teraphim shows compromise on her part, and yet amazingly, God uses even that to enable David to escape. Now let me comment on this whole situation with Michal a little bit more, because over the last couple of weeks people have had questions, you know, because I've said David should never have married Michal. She did not have the qualifications for courtship. He should never have gotten into it with her, and people have questioned that. But uh, let me comment on that. I I mentioned two weeks ago that Michal had some of the characteristics of her father. More of those characteristics in the upcoming chapters, especially in 2 Samuel, are going to ooze through. But for the author to mention this teraphim idol is an extremely significant fact. 
The New American Commentary says, Ominously, the prophet Samuel previously had suggested that Saul's rebellious acts were equitable to the, quote, evil of teraphim, unquote, 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. Through the present compelling scene, and without the intrusion of didactic commentary, the writer suggests that Michal was as much a spiritual rebel as her father. And he goes on to show other evidences of her rebellion. Now, people immediately object. They say, wait a minute, this is David's house too. If the teraphim is there, he's just as guilty as she is. And that would be true if he knew about this presence of the teraphim in his house. But the commentary went on to contrast her trust in this idol with David's total trust in the Lord in Psalm 59. He does not trust in idols. Another commentary pointed out that in the Middle East in those days, the person who inherited the teraphim of the family gained the right to the leadership and the property of that family. That was why Rachel stole Laban's teraphim. She was thinking, you know, Laban's just been cheating us out of everything. Uh, We need this back, and so I'm going to take the idol of Laban. Whoever owns this idol gets eventually the leadership of the whole clan. He gets all the property. Uh, That's what Rachel no doubt was thinking. By the way, Jacob had no clue that Rachel had stolen that teraphim. So it's possible that David had no idea that the teraphim was in, in his house either. We aren't told. Uh, one way or another on that, but certainly Psalm 59 shows he has no trust in the teraphim whatsoever, not whatsoever. Uh, Anyway, uh, so this is very parallel, I think, to what's going on uh, with Rachel, and who knows, maybe uh, Michal, when she finds out that David is in trouble, he's going to be killed, she figures, what do I do, what do I do, let me steal this teraphim. She may have stole it on that very day, Uh, David didn't even know about it till. Uh, he comes until uh, he comes home. Anyway, this commentary thinks that Michal may have taken the teraphim from Saul in order to have its powers on David's behalf. So she thinks maybe if he has the teraphim, he'll eventually have the kingdom too. So not only is she compromised, but she is using the very manipulative tactics that Saul, her father, had been using. Okay, trying to manipulate through this God. It's the way Saul operated. Anyway, this is yet another evidence that David should not have married Michal in the first place. But once he was married, the Bible would say that he needs to make this marriage the best that he can. He needs to serve this marriage. And I think that he would have if uh, it had been, uh, there had been the ability to do so. But God allowed Saul to take Michal away, marry her off to Palti, the son of Laish, and according to Deuteronomy 24, this would forever preclude David from taking Michal back. That may have been Saul's intention in the first place. Uh, He could not take her back, but David does take her back in 2 Samuel 3, and there is this weeping as she's leaving her, her second husband. He takes her back. It's an absolute mess. She despises David. Now, here's, here's the thing. It's one of the characteristics of the Bible. It describes life like it really is, with all of its messiness. Okay, it describes heroes with their defects, and yet mistake though this marriage to Michal was, God used it to save David. Even the teraphim, which is an abomination in the eyes of the Lord, was used by God to let David get some space between him and Saul. And God continues to use the compromises 
of Christians in churches, Christians in politics, Christians in other areas. It never excuses those compromises, and you're always going to see the evil fruit of those compromises bearing a harvest down, down the road. But God is still sovereign even over things, even things like that. So what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to give you a picture of how far-reaching God's providence is. It covers, it overrules everything without ever implicating God in sin. That's the amazing part. How can God control it without being implicated in sin? Well, that's even more amazing. He's just that sovereign. He's that great. And we can see, and I could illustrate to you, if you have questions about that and you think, boy, there's ethical issues there, I can explain it very simply. It's, uh, there is no issue with God controlling all things and yet not himself being the author of sin. Okay, we can see that God was at work, this is point number 10, and protecting David through the rest of her actions as well. She obviously loved David, and so we need to give her credit for that. So continuing to read, verse 13 And Michal took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, and covered it with clothes. Now, that's the first deception. It's very similar to the ruse that God directly commanded the Israelites to engage in when they conquered Ai. He said, pretend like you're running away. When everybody chases you this time, then we're going to have another group go in and burn the city down. This is very uh, similar to the ruse that many of you guys use. When you go on vacation and you have your lights automatically coming on and off, making it look like there is somebody at home. Now, there's a lot of people who have heartburn over that. They say, I don't think anybody should ever deceive. I'm not going to get into whether you should or whether you shouldn't. I think you do need to study it because you're going to be facing some very difficult times uh, in the future, and this is going to come up. I personally tend to side with Corey Ten Boom, who lied you know, to the Nazis and said, no, I don't have any Jews here. What do you think enough? <laughs> she didn't say it that way, but. Okay, verse 14. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. So there is the second deception. Very, very similar to the deception of Pharaoh that the midwives engaged in when they tried to save the baby's lives. You know, the Pharaoh said, kill all these babies. They weren't going to kill those babies. And both Exodus and Hebrews seems to justify their withholding the truth from the enemy. Now, we can't get into all of the ethics of misleading the enemy during a time of war. Uh, I just want to let you know that it is a subject you do need to study. The writer does not seem to highlight this as being a problem. When he later says, God judged me, call, it was over other issues that she was judged. Anyway, continuing to read in verse 15 through 17. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? I can certainly understand Michal's lie, but I think this last lie was a big mistake. She probably feared for her life. Now, Saul doesn't make any mention of the, the teraphim, though that alone could have gotten her into deep, deep uh, trouble. And maybe, actually, it, it could be that David got blamed for both. You know, that David stole the teraphim and David threatened my life. If I don't let him go, you know, I'd be in trouble. But in any case, whatever the case, God would use at least this excuse, David 
threatened to kill me as a justification to marry Mikal off to, uh, to Pulte. Um, you know, he's not only killed, uh, uh, attempted to kill my daughter, he's attempting to take over the government. You know, he's toast, it's just a matter of time, go ahead and, and marry. There's still no justification for it, but that may have very well gone in, into his mind. So this lie complicated things. I'm not saying I blame her for it. The point I want to highlight is that God uses Michal, whatever her merits or demerits, as part of his protection of David. He was using the teraphim, which was clearly a sin, as a part of protection of David. There's not a single verse in this section where God is not being a fortress and a strong tower to David. And then finally in verse 18, it says, So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. Uh, Ramah was three miles away, downhill from Gibeah. And uh, his going to Samuel makes perfect sense because he could get advice from the senior statesmen and he was a prophet as well. And as soon as he tells Samuel what's going on, Samuel brings him into Naoth. And Naoth is not another city. Naoth is a complex maze of buildings. And actually, archaeology has found some interesting things about it recently. But a complex maze of buildings that was a community of the uh, school of the prophets where they were trained and also where they lived. But what I want to bring up here, God often brings people like Samuel into our lives who can encourage us and who can bless us when life gets very, very difficult. And I'm so grateful for God's divine contacts that he makes uh, between people and people. Uh, Such an incredible encouragement. From time to time, I think I want us to have people sharing with each other because the Scripture commands us, exhort one another, seeing as the days are evil that we're supposed to stir one another and provoke one another to love and good works. We're supposed to be talking uh, to each other. It doesn't have to be in the worship service, but I think from time to time we're going to try to uh, do this uh, a little bit more. But let's end right now by singing this final hymn that talks about the mystery. There is a mysteriousness about the way in which God's providence works, and then I'm going to close in prayer.